I, uh, I, I'm curious, was there anybody here that was also at the choir concert or the caregivers? Yes, okay, the choir, the choir was there. That's fantastic. Thank you, Marshall. Hey, you might want to turn this up just a little bit. I had some people last Sunday saying, we couldn't quite hear. Uh, is that, Peg, I'm going Peggy's gonna be my canary in the cage. Is this, is this working? Okay, there's a thumbs, uh, well, it's not a thumbs up, it's an A-OK from Peggy in the back, so we're good. I'm not assuming that if you hear, everybody else can hear. I'm just deferring to you, Peggy, so I appreciate that. Probably everybody else can hear. What'd you say? Okay, now, yeah. Uh, it is great. It is great seeing you. And, you know, I, I am going to just give you a report. The, the choir was amazing. Uh, it, uh, you know, we had several choirs that participated, and I told the choir, this is not a competition except on this one day of the year, and y'all won. I mean, really, our, our choir is so good, and, uh, and Alan does a fantastic job leading. Uh, and I appreciate the effort that they put into things, uh, really. Uh, I knew that today we would have several people that would, you know, sadly, choose the guy who died and went to heaven over here. You know, I know how that, that's how it works. So, uh, w- but, you know, in spite of that, the choir comes like I come, like we all come every Sunday. This is for Jesus. And I love that attitude or that disposition I'm coming prepared because I'm really doing what I'm doing f- for the Lord. And, and that, that just shows in the, in the hearts of the, of our worship leaders, which would include not just Alan and Brett, but, but our choir. That's the thing's fantastic. Which now that I have brought up Don Piper, how many of y'all are, are planning on staying after Richards are kind of curious? Uh, it, it's going to be worthwhile. Um, if you've not, if you've not yet heard Don Piper, who wrote 90 Minutes in Heaven is going to be speaking really the lion's share almost all of the next service, just giving his testimony. So if you're able to stay after Sunday school or if you go for breakfast or whatever, come back. It's going to be worth uh, the visit. I just met him on the phone a couple of weeks ago. I had heard about this conference that was happening down in South Austin. And I thought, well, you know, he's in the area. Why not? So we had a nice little, I don't know, 30-minute conversation and just a nice... Who knew going to heaven and being with God would just impact a person's life like that? But I think he was probably a nice guy before that as a pastor and all the rest. And, but you'll want to come hear uh, the testimony. And he's really just decided to come down here and do this just out of the kindness of his heart. He knew it was a rather last-minute thing. He worked us in uh, from a, another talk he's doing at 9 o'clock down in Austin and... All he's doing is uh, setting up a book table. We're not paying him or anything. And so if you want to come back, you know, buy a book, be a little extra generous or something like that. But pretty neat, pretty neat person. Um, I I got a call earlier this week that, well, it annoyed the fire out of me. I'd had enough. I was done. It was energy advocates. If y'all get calls from energy advocates, it's a telemarketing something, something. And I didn't know it was energy advocates because the, the caller ID had a name, Far Mallory. Like, do I know a Far Mallory? And if I don't, I need to meet this person because I've never met a Far Mallory before. And so I answered the phone and it was energy advocates. 
And it was like the 1,497 millionth call from energy advocates. It seems like I get a call from them almost every day, and I was done. So I, I hung up, and as soon as I did, I called the FCC. I didn't, I'm not kidding. I called the FCC, and when uh, they answered, it was an indiv- a live person, and they said, Ernest, we're so glad that you called. We want to help you. We are sending a cease and desist order right now to energy advocates. In fact, we're filing a lawsuit on your behalf to reclaim damages from the time that has been lost to you because of the 1.497 billion calls that you've had already. Actually, that's not what really what happened. Uh, I did call the FCC the, and, uh, you know, the uh, Federal what is it, Communications Commission. And I called and I got an answering machine or an automated message, and it was... You know, hi, we're from the government, and we're here to help. Here's another number you need to call. Glad to be of help. You know, that was pretty much the extent of the call. And I did call this other number, and I got on the national do not call list. There's an actual national do not call list, and I got on it, and I, I got this app on my iPhone and all the rest. It's a call blocker. It took me about 15 minutes to deal with this because I was, I was done with energy advocates. I've got this philosophy of I don't buy energy from people who suck it from me, okay? And so I was done. I don't want to listen to them anymore. Now, the reason I bring this up is as a human being, as an American, I have a right to choose who I'll listen to, who I won't. Now, of course, we can do that toward anybody. We can do that toward God. Jesus, of course, pleads with us, hey, listen to me and uh, follow my voice. In fact, the way I know that you belong to me, Jesus lets us know, is you, you hear my voice and you follow my voice. Uh, and the way we know when someone's not a sheep, no matter how they might self-define, is they don't listen to his voice and they don't follow after Jesus. But we have choices in the matter. Here's how Jesus puts it. This is over in John chapter 10. We're going to read verses 3 through 5. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. The text tells us, Jesus tells us, the shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't follow strangers. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, for the Christian... Jesus is the good shepherd, and when Jesus is the good shepherd, you and you're his sheep, you hear his voice, and you follow after him, because it's all about Jesus. That's the way it works. It, Jesus says this of himself elsewhere. This is over in Revelation chapter 1. He says, I'm the first and the last, and actually a fuller statement, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's the beginning and the end. He's everything in between. That is, everything revolves around Jesus. And you would say, well, that actually kind of sounds a little arrogant, unless you're God or unless you're the good shepherd. See, for Jesus, shepherd and leading, shepherding and directing, shepherding and overseeing, they they go together. The good shepherd, yeah, on occasion, he's going to bandage the sheep. But why does he have to bandage the sheep? Because they strayed away from the shepherd. He protects the sheep, but sometimes they kind of go astray, and he's gentle and cares for them and all the rest. But on the whole, the shepherd leads, and the 
sheep follow. He's the director. He's the overseer. He's the, the one who's in charge. The book of Hebrews talks about the shepherd or the overseer is the one who rules. That's Jesus. Now, sometimes people relate to Jesus like, well, he's my servant. Jesus is self-understanding a servant, but our understanding toward Jesus is your ruler. That's how it works. I, I met a fellow one time who explained to me, yeah, 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 uh, Jesus has my back. And, and he, but he wasn't really interested in following Jesus. Like, well, this is true. Jesus is a servant to you and he supports you and he upholds you. But the question with regards to being a follower or not is, are you following? Do you understand his voice? Do, do you allow Jesus to, to rule? Or are you expecting Jesus just to follow along behind you and pick up after you and support you? That's different than being a sheep who belongs to the shepherd and hears the voice. Another way of putting it is Jesus is radically relevant. That is, everything revolves around Jesus. I've never felt pressed to make Jesus relevant to you or to me. I think the press is we need to become relevant to Jesus because it's his voice and it's his leadership to which we must respond. And this radical relevance is so uh, apparent in so many different passages, but I want to direct your attention this morning to the fact that it's the radical relevance of Jesus that caused the church to arise in the first place. We wouldn't have a church if the original Christians didn't understand the incredible, radical relevance of Jesus. I want to take you back to the beginning. Here's a little church history. Let's go back to the beginning of the church. Go back to, in our minds, maybe 2,000 years to Jerusalem, the holy city of Israel, and the land of the Jews. And I need you to, to put your thinking caps on and really concentrate here. You have to recognize that during the first decade of Christianity, basically every Christian was Jewish in heritage. Okay, it's a, it's a Jewish movement for the first 10 years. I also need you to understand that by the time Jesus is on the scene, the Jews have undergone about 700 years of captivity and capture and oppression and all the rest, starting with the, the Babylonians and the the Assyrians and the Persians, and now they're, they've had to endure, you know, the Greeks and the Romans are in the land. And there's been a lot of this oppression and capture and captivity, and, and actually there's Jews that are kind of spread all over the world at this point because of the capture and sometimes the, you know, escape uh, from oppressive authorities. And, and yet still to this day, there are Jews, okay? Uh, in fact, we have people culturally that we know here in this congregation who are Jewish in terms of their heritage. You've met Jews. I know Jews. But have you met any Hittites? Really? You met any Perizzites? Met any Ammonites? And no, Dan and Pan Ammon do not count, okay? They're, they're not Ammonites. They're just in-laws, okay? That's different. Uh you know any Persians, Babylonians? No, but we know Jews. Why, no, why is it that we don't have any of these other ancient peoples running around all over the place? Well, it, it, it's easy to explain. 
when people get captured and taken away or they get invaded by some opposing oppressive force, the people will intermarry. And then they lose their national identity. That just happens in captivity and transition and natural cultural transformation. It's, it's easy to understand. You suppose you've got a, a grandson or son, and he goes off to, into the military and gets maybe located in Germany. You could imagine that while he's stationed there, he meets some nice little uh, Fraulein from the Deutschland, and they get married, and they're all happy, and maybe he never moves. And within a generation or two, they don't even consider themselves Americans anymore. It's normal. And, you know, when the world gets taken over by China in another 40 years, well, then, you know, there's going to be more transitions, and who knows what's going to happen. I mean, really, you you move into another culture, you intermarry, identity changes, transforms, gets lost. But that didn't happen for the Jews. I mean, it's not just 700 years from the original captivity. Here we are, like, thousands of years later, and we still have Jews. Why? Because... Uh, the Jews valued these things that gave them their national identity. There were some things that were precious to the Jews that maintained their national identity, certain social structures that were enormously important to the Jews. They were enormously important for, for a couple of reasons. The Jews took these social structures, we'll call them, and they passed them on to their children, and every Sabbath they would celebrate these social structures with their children and and they would reinforce these social structures or institutions or laws. Why? Because they knew if they didn't keep passing them to their children and pressing week after week after week within tight community, their identity would be lost. They were, they were right. But there's something else. The Jews also believed that these institutions, these structures, had been entrusted to them by God. And to turn their back on these things that had been entrusted to them by God would be basically to risk their souls to hell after death. And I know that's a progressive idea in the Jewish community, but by the time of Christ, this is exactly what the Jews believed was on the line when it came to holding on to these things that had been entrusted to them by God. Now, there's this Jew, this Jew from a lower-class community Nazareth of Galilee, nowhere place. And Jesus gathers this following of lower class, middle class people, teaches for about three years, gets in trouble with the authorities, gets arrested and gets crucified, along with an estimated 30,000 or so other Jewish males who were executed during the same time period. And then... About six weeks after he's crucified, there's not just a few Jews, but a community of Jews numbering at least 10,000 who are naming Jesus as this living leader who has introduced them all to a whole new way of doing life. And as they're proclaiming Jesus as their leader who's brought about a whole new way of living in this world and doing life and thinking about life, in order to do all of this, they abandon or at least modify these five basic social structures or institutions that have been entrusted to them by God. 
And as they adjust or abandon entirely these five institutions, they do so knowing that they don't have really much to gain other than persecution, possibly their souls going to hell after death. Now, the implication is something extraordinary must have happened. Something huge is going on. Something uh, earth-shattering must have occurred. So let's just think about the, the five institutions that the Jews had to have adjusted, abandoned, in order to name Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I think this is kind of helpful. Here are the, the five things, the five changes that were brought about. Number one, animal sacrifice ended. Number two, observance of the Mosaic law was de-emphasized. Number three, Sabbath observant, observance ended. Number four, the view of the Messiah as a suffering servant replaced the view of the Messiah as a conquering earthly king. And then number five, worship, something reserved for God alone, was given to a man. Okay, first off, ever since the time of Abram and, and, and Moses, the Jews knew that they had to offer an animal sacrifice. An animal had to be sacrificed, had to be slaughtered for the atonement, for the covering of sins. Uh, the sins of the people would be transferred to the animal. They would stand forgiven and be in right relationship with God. But following the crucifixion of this lower-class Jew from Nazareth, all of a sudden, for these Jews who became followers of Jesus, sacrifice ended. Why? Well, because Jesus, risen from the dead, demonstrated that he was who he said he was and that he had the authority to do what he set out to do to cover over our sins once and for all. There's a a second thing that I think is worth pointing out, and that is the Jews emphasized obeying all the laws of God that had been entrusted to them by Moses. And, And you had to obey these laws because the obedience of the laws that had been entrusted to them they considered to be the very thing that set them apart from the pagan cultures around them. But after the death of Jesus, in relatively short order, no longer were these important laws that had been entrusted to them for generations, no longer were they necessary or the observance of them necessary in order to be a good member in good standing of the community of faith. Why? Because by the resurrection, Jesus had demonstrated that one greater than Moses had come and the new covenant In Christ's blood, this new covenant of grace was superior to and completing the old covenant of Mosaic law. The other thing that's worth pointing out is that the Jews scrupulously kept the Sabbath. We know this by not working, not doing anything other than religious observance. This was uh, at the time considered to be important not just with regards to doing the right thing, but maintaining your standing within the community as a, as a member of the Israelite nation. Also, uh, some people would say that it helped to guard or protect or secure the salvation of the entirety of the family. But when Jesus was crucified and people named him as their Lord and Savior, in relatively short order, people stopped their Sabbath observance and started worshiping on Sunday. Why? because that was the day Jesus rose from the dead. Number four, the Christians pictured the Messiah as someone who suffered and died for the sins of the world rather than the traditional Jewish belief of the Messiah being the conquering earthly king for the nation of Israel only 
with the hope that this conquering earthly king would kick out the Romans. Something extraordinary had to have happened in order for people to absolutely do a 180 with regards to that perception of the Messiah's agenda. And then finally, number five, they believed in monotheism, the Jews, only one God. And said, wait a second, we're monotheists too. Well, yeah, but specifically we're Trinitarians. And as Trinitarians, we believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one Godhead. That's radically different than what the Jews believed. If a man ever claimed to be God, well, that would be blasphemy. Oh, and that happens to have been the accusation against Jesus. And for somebody to worship somebody who claimed to be God, that would have been considered you know, blasphemous in and of itself. But we know that in short order, from the beginning of the church after Jesus Christ was crucified, these Jews who'd become Christians were worshiping Jesus, an activity that was reserved for God alone. So how do you explain all of this? How do you explain not just one, but several Jews, thousands, 10,000 Jews in relatively short order, turning their back on these five social institutions that had served them so well, that were so important to their community sociologically and theologically? There's only one explanation that just seems to fit. They had seen Jesus risen from the dead. Jesus Christ was, in fact, the Son of God, died for our sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day. Now, it's pretty hard for us to really appreciate the revolution of an entire community turning their back on these social institutions like they did because we live in such a fluid sort of a, a world, especially when it comes to religious beliefs. Okay, People will bounce back and forth between you know, Christianity and kind of New era wokeism, people will bounce back and forth between, you know, all kinds of idolatries and, and, and Buddhism and Shintoism and even religious atheism. And you, what's a religious atheist? Don't ask me. Ask the new, uh, chaplain of Harvard University. He's a religious atheist. You say, well, that doesn't even make sense. It does make sense because it helps other people to, find themselves, which is at the heart of most people's religious experience. It's not about me molding my life to to God. It's about somehow reworking a God to fit me. And there's nothing, there's probably no person better to be a chaplain of Harvard University than a religious atheist. That sounds like, that just sounds crazy. Well, it is a little silly. But we do rework spirituality to revolve around ourselves. We do this all the time, Christians or self-understanding Christians. I got this, these memes sent to me from Robin Kramer. She's uh, our secretary. She also helps to lead the C.S. Lewis class. It's not a young adult class. You, you can come. We'd love for you to try that out. But she sent me these little memes, and I thought this was kind of good, these woke Jesus memes. Do we have these pictures? Your feelings have saved you. Go in peace. Don't offend people. Blessed are those who compromise on moral issues when it's convenient. You will slowly begin to understand my true teaching on sexuality around 2,000 years from now. With government, all things are possible. It doesn't really matter what you do so long as deep down inside you feel like you're a good person. If anyone desires to come after me, let him improve his self-esteem, fill his life with comfort, and do everything that makes him happy. Now, in case any of you are wondering, those are not Scripture quotations. Okay, but it 
But that kind of stuff happens, and, and we hear it. It reminds me of, I call it sonic spirituality. Because at Sonic, there's 168,000 drink combinations that are available to you. And you think on the surface, well, that's so much diversity. That's fantastic. It's not diverse. It's very uniform. Because in all 168,000 possible combinations, you know what's at the heart of it? You know what's the constant? You do you. Whatever works for you. Because our whole Sonic in this moment, revolves around you. That's not the way it is for Jesus. That is kind of the way it is for modern-day 21st century American wokest Christianity. You just do you. You do what makes you happy. Jesus has got your back. That's not radical relevance. And so we do sometimes have a hard time really appreciating fully that the revolution that occurred in the early Jews' lives and in the lives of this entire community was a huge, huge, huge deal. I want to tell you a story, and I think I've told you this before. It might have been 10 years ago. I don't know. But it it, it will help you to understand really what's at stake here. Because most of us, we know people who have a hard time changing their beliefs or you can't imagine them ever changing their beliefs or ever changing their actions because of the depth of their convictions. Uh, So you kind of understand this. I I heard the story about a young woman. Her name was Louise. She was a beautiful little Catholic girl. She was in her early 20s, and she fell in love with a man named Keith. And Keith returned her affection with equal passion. But, she explained to her mom, but Keith is Hindu. And he told me that neither he nor his family could ever marry into a Roman Catholic family. It's just not going to work. And she said this while sobbing, and I can't give up my faith either. What am I going to do? And so her mom explained to her, because her mom was this national sales representative for AutoNation, and the mom had said, well, just try some salesmanship. Just try to persuade Keith. Talk to him about the wonderful Catholic church. Take him to some cathedrals and chapels. Talk about our saints and our martyrs and introduce him to some of our wonderful beliefs and, and you know, try to get him to understand the, the glorious uh, you know, forgiveness and comfort that we receive from our priests. Just sell Keith on the Roman Catholic Church. You've got it in your blood. You can do this. And so Louise said, okay, I'll try. So for the next few weeks, she did her best to sell Keith on the Roman Catholic Church, and it seemed to be working. And then one day, about six weeks later, Louise was sobbing. Her mom saw her and said, honey, what's wrong? I thought things were going well between you and Keith. Well, they were. And she said, well, what happened? Did he, did he not buy what you were selling? And she said, no, actually, I oversold him. Now Keith wants to go into the priesthood. Okay, that always gets a chuckle. And the reason is we couldn't imagine a Hindu in six weeks taking a vow of celibacy and going into the priesthood because of some powerful salesmanship. That's not going to happen. Yeah. And imagine 10,000 Hindus taking vows of celibacy and going into the priesthood about six months, six weeks into the salesmanship. No way. Now you're kind of coming close to seeing an entire community of Jewish believers forsaking or at least abandoning substantially these five social institutions that they believed were from God 
that held them together as a people for centuries and that also brought them nothing but the promise of persecution or the possibility of hell after death if they were wrong. Think for a second about your most dearly held beliefs. Okay, what, if, there was a, if there was a core belief, what would it be? Maybe you can think of several. Suppose you say, I could never turn my back on the conviction that there is a God. Well, what would, what would it take to get you from going, there's a God, to there is no God? Or there is a God, and he is love, and then and they say, no, no, God hates the world. Would that ever happen for you? Or maybe you've got a conviction that child abuse is wrong. What would it take for you to say child abuse is good? I don't think I'd ever do that. Okay, now you're getting close to an entire community turning their backs on these deeply, deeply, deeply held beliefs. What accounts for that? Obviously, they saw something. Obviously, they encountered something. Obviously, something awoke them so that they could never see the world in the same way or live in the world the same way ever again. And what they saw was Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and risen on the third day. This accounts for the birth of the church. What I'm trying to drive home is there's only one explanation for the fact that the church was born in out of Jerusalem of all places in the midst of fundamentalist Judaism, and that is that Jesus is who he said he was and he did what it is that he set out to do. I want to take you to probably the earliest confession in the entire Bible. Uh, textual critics, New Testament scholars will say the, the oldest confession that we have in the Bible is over in 1 Corinthians, and it's this passage right here. It's not really exactly original to Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, is believed to be a confession that dates back to about three to five years after Christ. Listen to what Paul says here. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Here's what I received. Here's the confession. Mark it down. This is the core of the core. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And if you want proof, here it is. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. Hundreds saw Christ alive after the crucifixion. Paul says, I was one of them. There's lots of others. Go check it out. Talk to him yourself. That's the only explanation. Now, the reason I bring all this up is to say, I think that continues to be the most profound explanation. When people's lives and the lives of people in a community together are radically reoriented around Christ. Again, we live in a society or a culture where God, in some cases even unfortunately, Jesus, religion, it just kind of revolves around us. We're sonic 168,000. But when people go, you know, it's his voice. It's his direction. I don't care what my particular preference is or orientation is or desire is in this moment. He's the shepherd. And I hear his voice and I follow after him. That still is a very, very, very strong testimony. And I appreciate the testimony that I get from people all the time. 
I'm, uh, I, I explained before the service, I'm trying not to shake hands. I'll do the fist bump thing. My son's got a, I'll get COVID after the wedding, okay? Uh, but uh, my son's got this wedding coming up two weeks. I saw him this last weekend, and, and it was so good uh, just listening to him talk about his experiences in his class because there's a lot of team and a lot of camaraderie and all the rest. But one of the things that was very interesting to me and compelling is, and this isn't just true with my son, he has connected with other Christians that are in the program, and there are plenty that are not. And it has been definitively obvious to my son and to some of these Christian buds of his that there is a, a, a radically different mindset when it comes to uh, service and leadership and administration. And it has to do with Jesus' impact on their life. And so my son... And some of these friends of his, they've started a Bible study, like before the class. And I'm just thinking, I'm, he's telling me some of these conversations that he's been having and some of the conversations that the other friends of his have been having. And I was just thinking, you know, it's great to know my son is not being reshaped, but he's reshaping. And some of you know this because of where God has placed you. You're not, you're not being unkind. You're just refusing to be reshaped, and you are taking risks with other people so as to reshape. It shows up in, in terms of, and I have to say again, just with regards to the choir and the disposition, the, the servant-mindedness of our people, the way people show up and do what they do, and the way that you have been given me permission, really, as long as I've been here, to just preach the word unapologetically, hopefully not grace, gracelessly, but I appreciate that a, a whole bunch. And you know what that says to me? There are sheep that just want to hear Jesus' voice. And like you, on a daily routine basis, I practice repentance, reworking my mind, reworking my life, so as to make my life relevant to Jesus. He's the center of it all. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, and everything in between. It all revolves around Jesus. And let me tell you something. He's worth it. And it gives tremendous testimony to other people when they see your life and the lives of other believers around you reworking to Jesus rather than the opposite direction. Stay faithful. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, you are good and uh, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for sending your son, and uh, sometimes it's easy to follow because, uh, it's, I don't know, there are, just, there are just days, maybe it just seems that way, but oftentimes it's very uh, difficult as uh, we hear the voice of the one who cries out to us and uh, through the cross, and we take up our cross daily and follow you and and that, you know, it, we would be silly if we didn't say it wasn't sometimes painful. And to obey in, in every arena with regards to our actions, with regards to our thoughts, our, our imaginations. Uh, but, Lord, we, we know who you are. And if the early church would rework everything around it, around you at great expense, even embracing persecution... Well, then surely, Lord, you would have the church to continue along those same lines. So, Jesus, help us to remain faithful to you and to grow in our faithfulness and transformation 
that you, our good shepherd, our leader, our guide, our ruler, would be well pleased with our response. And also that the world would see with great clarity just how revolutionarily relevant you are. So relevant that everything about our lives has to become relevant to you as it should. And Lord, if there are any here this morning who have yet to receive you as Savior and Lord, I pray that you would give them the wisdom to do so, not just for the sake of the comfort, although your word comforts us and we know there is eternity ahead. But Lord, we want to respond to you because you're you. You're God. You, you came, you suffered, and you died on our behalf for the world. And that includes us. How could we not bend a knee before you, especially in light of the resurrection where you demonstrated who you are and the power to atone for, to cover our sins once and for all? This is not about us getting a, a drink of our choice. This is about us coming to terms with you being truly the good shepherd. Give us the wisdom to receive you and to follow you. And if there are any here who have yet to acknowledge you as their good shepherd, I pray that they would just pray this prayer to you. Lord, I know that I've sinned. I've fallen short. I have, I have like a silly sheep gone astray. And I know, Lord, I, I have a tendency to stray. It's not just that I've done wrong. It's that I did the wrong knowing it was wrong. So I know I need forgiveness. And I know that the forgiveness comes to me from my good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. And that includes me. And so, God, right now I want to receive Jesus as my Lord, my Savior, my sacrificial shepherd. And for the rest of my days in response to what he's done to me or for me, I I pray, Lord, that I would follow him appropriately in humility but with uh, consistency. Lord, thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you pray.